My name is Abe Daniel. I serve as a senior pastor in Sacramento. It's an honor to be here with you this day. It is a unique moment. I received a phone call from your pastor, and he said something that caught me off guard. He said, Abe, I want to do something. I want to give you an opportunity that many people dream of having and yet do not have the opportunity to. I'm going to make a dream of yours come true. I'm going to let you come to Red Bluff and speak in my absence. How many of you know that's an amazing pastor who who will do whatever it takes to set it up? And because of my history, because of my past, because of a formal uh, title, I said, Pastor, thank you so much. However, I need you to know I've already done that. And it was dead silent on the other end of the phone. And he said, you just stole my thunder. That just, that doesn't work. Your pastor and I have uh, the privilege of serving on several different teams with the Assemblies of God. And I've, I've sat next to him. We've sat together in different settings. And I'm a big fan of Pastor David Blythe. And I'm praying right now for his family. And I celebrate and honor you for giving him a chance to not just rest, but to refresh in a season that he can come home and begin a new chapter in a new season. And we're praying that over High Point today. I want to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30. As you're turning there, Pastor David shared that I have a little connection to this church and it is associated with my now family. My in-laws, my father-in-law, senior pastor at this church for over a decade and it's a joy to be back in this town. However, I grew up not far from here. It's a suburb of Red Bluff, a little town called Orland. Now, if you're from the area and you just heard me use the word suburb and Orland, then you already know he has no idea what he's talking about. But I grew up in Orland. I spent two years of my life there. My wife is from this city. And one thing that connects me anytime I drive back into this city, I'm reminded of the day that I drove to Red Bluff to ask my now in-laws their blessing to marry their daughter. And so there's anxiousness, there's anxiety. It's the one and only time that I ordered a Cobb salad for lunch because I didn't even know what I was doing. I just, I was so scared to sit in front of them. And I didn't eat the salad, by the way, and I've never ordered a salad again, but still, (laughs) it's a joy to be here today. 1 Samuel chapter 30 is where we get to look at just for the next few moments that we have together. And I've titled our time today, When the Fog Lifts. Will you say that out loud? One more time, when the fog lifts. This theme of fog is something that I've had the experience of in which it can come and settle in into different settings and seasons over our lives. I've learned that fog causes the familiar to become confusing. There have been years where I've been driving at different times and fog would set into the different setting and the highways and the freeways that I was on. And it would cause me to visualize things that were not actually there. I've missed my street because of fog, because familiar things now become confusing. When I think about fog, it's the kind of thing that causes me to smile in different aspects because fog also was the reason that I hit a deer with my car. It was not hunting season, so it didn't count, but I will tell you that I knocked Bambi's mom off the edge of a cliff because of fog. I'm okay. You don't care about me, but you cared about the deer. That's fine. I made it. I'm here to tell you the story. And when I think about fog, I also am reminded about things that have happened in history that were impacted specifically by fog. If you study history, June 18, 1815 is a date that's connected with the Battle of Waterloo. It was in this battle that the French forces under the leadership of Napoleon would become defeated. They would be defeated by the Duke of Wellington who was leading the British army. The Battle of Waterloo would put an end to the tyrant rule and authority of Napoleon. When Napoleon had returned to power in 1815, many had opposed his comeback. And there were two forces that were working to stop and halt his entire reign. Those forces were under the command of the Duke of Wellington. Napoleon had planned to begin his attack of these said forces, and the Battle of Waterloo would be the greatest battle of these two forces, and the English would be the ones to wait for the sign and the signal that would indicate that this battle had come to a conclusion. It was on June 18th, Wellington pulled out all of his forces to rise up against Napoleon, who was wiping out each and every 
enemy that he was encountering. Napoleon was on roll. He had the charisma. He had the mind of a true leader, and he was ready for another victory. They pulled out all their forces, and Waterloo would be the battle. They would meet head on that day, and battle would last the entire day. The English gathered at the cathedral, the local church, to hear the message. Yet in those days, they do not have breaking news such as we receive. There was no such thing as television or instant media updates. And so they would gather at the church because at the church in the, t- in the steeple would be a signal tower on top of one of the cathedrals in the city. It would be there at that cathedral that they would spell out the message that they wanted to communicate as that was the highest point in the city. And so they gathered at the Winchester Cathedral and began to wait for the message to come in in relation to the battle. It was at about 4 p.m. that the message had come in and they began to spell out the letters on top of that cathedral. And the words read, Wellington defeated. It was at that very moment it said that a very thick fog bank began to settle in and they could no longer read the remainder of the sign. All they could see were the words, Wellington defeated. News began to spread throughout that city and the villages that were close around. The people's hearts began to think with fear. There was weeping, there was wailing. Some went to hysterics because Napoleon had defeated their last hope. It was their last chance to overcome him and all they knew was that Wellington had been defeated. This continued for about two hours and then the fog began to lift. And as the fog began to lift, they were able to read the remainder of the message, which read, Wellington defeated the enemy. For two hours, they lived under the wrong perspective. They lived under the wrong context, and that perspective put them into, inside them, wrong emotions. It put discouragement, doubt, and failure inside them. And yet the fact of the matter was that Wellington was not defeated, They were free people, and the fact of the matter was there should have been great celebration, yet because of fog, they lost all their perspective. How many of you already understand where we're going today? I believe that fog is something that, especially since 2020, March of of that particular year, fog has set in at multiple times over these last several years. I've learned that fog, again, causes the familiar to become confusing. Fog causes our confidence to become uncertain. Fog causes our strength to become weak. Fog prevents our actual vision, our vision, the actual clarity that we need. Regardless of where you're at today, my prayer, the reason that I got into a vehicle and traveled with my family to join you today is to encourage you based upon fog seasons that can settle into your lives or your families. Scripture reminds us and gives us in this room or those that are watching online today, The opportunity to be encouraged that fog does not have to change us. The fog can begin to lift. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. In the New King James Version, or in the King James Version, says it like this. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag. On the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinonam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, That's not a coffee drink, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) They had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abithathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, if you need tongue twisters, can I just encourage you to go to God's word? It says, bring the ephod here to me. And Abithathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue the truth? Shall I overtake them? Verse eight concludes by saying, and he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail, recover all. Will you bow in prayer with me today? 
Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this day and this privilege to gather. I thank you so much for the joy of being able to open your word. Lord, today as we open this word, I pray for the Blythe family and ask that you will continue to bless them, refresh them, encourage them, strengthen them, and Lord, prepare them for a new season and a new chapter of ministry here within this region. And now, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray that you will open up our hearts to receive that which you have for us. Open up our ears so that we're attentive to the words that you desire for us. Open up our eyes to see and our minds to absorb and apply it to our daily lives today. We thank you in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Every time I read this text, there's something that stands out very vividly. This was not some random group of individuals. These individuals in this passage were the greatest leaders and soldiers of all time. These were the best of the best, top leaders and warriors. And at the helm was David, king of Israel. Most believe and know David was a fierce warrior, a true leader, someone who was filled with great faith as opposed to fear. And yet it's in this passage that we have a very unique view of which fog began to settle in. It was the Amalekites that torched Ziklag. And David and his men returned to a smoke-filled city. There was the haze of smoke. We would call it in another context fog. It was natural, but then there was also a supernatural spiritual fog that had begun to settle in. Their families had been taken captive. David and their army and the army there, they are now facing a spirit of defeat. And in verse four, it says that the men began to speak of stoning David and they began to weep. And it wasn't just a simple cry. It was a moan from the greatest warriors at that season, at that time in history. They were so disillusioned, they began to blame David, assuming that it was his fault. This was a season where David began to do something that I pray becomes even our own encouragement today. In verse four, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. I love this as our great testimony for us who find ourselves in our own fog moments. Don't wait for the answers to come from the outside. Can I encourage you today? Our answer will not come from the government. Your answer is not gonna come from a doctor. Your answer is not gonna come from your employer, your family, or your friends. When you find yourselves battling, begin today by strengthening yourself in the Lord. Seek him first, and then all these things will be added. David asked for the ephod so that he could ask a question. The purpose of an ephod at that time was to help the priest determine the will of God. And it was there that David asked and had the question posed before the Lord. Shall I pursue? Shall I overtake? He's in the midst of his deep fog moment, and yet he's asking the Lord for direction. The Lord answers with these three commands. Pursue for you shall surely overtake and without fail recover all. It's in the season of a thick fog that God always gives us a clear action plan. And these three encouraging words that are found at this, in this passage become our template today for the fog moments that are gonna come and sit in our own lives. If you're taking notes today, I wanna give it to you in these three areas. Number one today is the word pursue. Will you say that nice and loud, pursue. Again, verse eight, and he answered him, pursue. That word, if you define it in the English language, is to strive to gain, to seek to attain or accomplish. David is ordered to go pursue the enemy, the band of men that has caused him some of the greatest pain at that moment. He was charged with a mission with, and of hunting them out, and his faith would now supply him with this inward source of comfort and courage and strength, and an inspired confidence by ordering an immediate pursuit of the Amalekites. Can I encourage you differently, church, that when the fog sets in with its own thick cloud and you can no longer decipher the mission that God has for you, he is, God is reminding us all today that you and I, we are to return to a godly pursuit. Your pursuit of the original mission will bring about the greatest celebration and an inner strength that man will never be able to measure because it's confidence that's rooted in the Lord. Can I ask you this? What's the last thing that you've aggressively pursued in your life? The kind of thing that you would not allow to escape. I think about most people, we pursue things like relationships, hobbies, 
Some pursue addictions without realizing that's what we're in pursuit of. Everything but that which God has for us becomes easier, but none of those things come with the promise of God's presence. Fog prevents our ability to pursue with confidence. Fog causes any pursuit to become slower. And church, we're reminded today that in the midst of adversity, when defeat is our only reasonable emotion, God's challenge to the church today is simple, pursue. It's not enough that you pursue the vision, but rather your relationship with him. Pursue once again with great fervor the single mission of your calling and his plans for your life. Today, the first step in allowing the grip of the fog that can settle into our lives today is to return back to this word, pursue. Today, number one is the word pursue. Number two is the word overtake. Say that out loud, overtake. Verse eight, one more time. And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake. That word overtake is to catch up with in traveling or pursuit or to move ahead of in achievement. Production, it's to surpass. David doesn't begin when it's convenient. He doesn't begin when he feels peace. He orders all 600 men who were with him to gather and only a portion of them would take the journey with him. Teaches us that to truly overtake the enemy, it requires us never to procrastinate. I'm reminded of Abraham in scripture who was asked in order to go sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. And it doesn't say that he waited for multiple signs. It says early the next morning. That's our reminder that when God speaks, our response should be immediate and it should be yes. David's given this mission pursue, overtake, and recover all. And it says that he began to set out and those soldiers began to follow their leader. Their mission was to advance towards the goal. I believe that most of us can become overtaken in our seasons of fog. Instead of advancing through those kinds of seasons, it's fog that consumes us. It consumes our life. It consumes our mission, our vision. It consumes our families, our careers, even our ministry. And sometimes it can even consume his will for our lives. The word overtake is not to define our state. It's to illuminate our mission to recapture what God has called us towards. David in this passage comes upon an Egyptian servant to the Amalekites whom he asked to help both he and the soldiers that were traveling with him. This man would agree to do so if he would swear not to kill him. His willingness to pursue led him to this servant who aided his attempt in overtaking the enemy. Overtake the enemy. I believe we're in a culture and a setting in which the enemy is not often referred to in churches. I'm grateful that you have a pastor who's not afraid to preach God's undoctored word. Many churches don't speak of this enemy who's known as the devil, who's known as Satan, who's known as Lucifer, the fallen angel, and many other names that are used to identify him. That name devil means accuser because he accuses God's people before the throne of God. That's what it says in Revelation 12. Satan means adversary because he is the enemy of God. He's called the tempter in Matthew 4. He's the murderer and the liar in John chapter 8. He's compared to as a lion in 1 Peter. He's a serpent in both Genesis 3 and Revelation 12. And his singular mission is to take you and I out. His mission is to overtake us. But the fate is to be overtaken because that's what God's word says. We are not to be overtaken. It's the enemy that will be overtaken by the word of our Lord. I believe God has sent me here today to challenge this church to stand against the schemes of our enemy. Just because the enemy has spoken words of doubt, it will never erase the promises of God. Just because fog has set in and all we can see are the distractions of an enemy, fog is filling our lives today so that we can be reminded that the enemy will be overtaken. He has sent me here to remind you, you are not to be overtaken. He is sending you out to overtake the enemy because God has already won. Today, we need no worry. We needn't worry about the enemy because our mission is simple, it's to pursue. Number two, it's to overtake. And lastly, number three, it's to recover all. Say those words. Simply defined, to recover all is to find. It's regain, it's to retrieve. 
If you skip to verses 17 through 20, we see what happens as David pursues, overtakes, and now it's the recovery moment. In verse 17 in the English Standard Version, this is how it reads. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. I think we could all celebrate that just in that moment, but that's not where it ends. Then in verse 20, it says, David also captured, he also added, he captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Not only did he regain everything that was stolen and taken, there was a bounty that David began to seize from his enemy, the Amalekites. It was referred to as David's spoil. Can I encourage you that when you and I think that we've lost, when we believe our world is over, when there is no more hope, our Father's message for us today, you will not just recover all that you think that you've lost, there will be an abundance. It will be above and beyond. What the enemy has intended as harm and grief for your life, the Lord will allow to become your greatest blessing. There will be nothing lost. This is our promise for our life. That's a moment where the fog begins to lift. Our eyes can see that there's something greater than what I thought that I was missing. I believe that most of us in this room would understand what fog does to us. We know fog changes our perspective. There's some drivers that I know who have waited out the fog seasons where they remain at their original destination until fog begins to lift. I've known drivers who have pulled over to the side of the road and waited, hoping the fog would lift faster so that they could continue their journey. And there are others. This is a small group, and I believe it's the mission of the church. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, where we say these words, we will never allow fog to cripple us. Instead, we will pursue, we will overtake, and without fail, we will recover all that we believe we lost. Why? Because today is a day where we're praying for the fog to lift. In my life, there have been moments where fog has settled in. June 8th, 1998 was the day that I would tell you that I would not know or who would have guessed that I would begin the day feeling as if I was on top of the world and end the day feeling as if fog had settled in. I had just finished Bible college. The church that I was serving at, basically volunteering for, had now agreed to pay me to do what I knew God had called me to do. I was going to be compensated. That meant I did not have to work two or three other opportunities to make ends meet. I was feeling blessed. I was in a season in which my now wife, Anna, and I, we were dating, and I had just had the conversation with my parents to ask for her parents' blessing to eventually propose. I felt in that season everything in my life was lining up accordingly. It was then that I received a phone call from a group of friends, and they said, we are going to go golf. Let me just confess something. Golf is a game that I love, but I'm awful. I absolutely stink. When I got to the golf course that evening, I was celebrating the fact that, man, I even have friends that like me. This is a good day. And as I was there, there were way too many pastors together in one in two different golf groups. And I'll just say this, when more than one pastor is present, something bad always happens. That's my experience. We all began to golf, and if you don't know the game of golf, if you hit your ball, the, go- the, the object of the game is to have as few as strokes as possible. Everyone on hole number one received a three or a four. I received the number seven. I received the number seven because I hit the ball out of bounds. It struck a cow. <laughs> That's not some visual or illustration. That's a real thing. I hit a cow. I still jumped the fence, hit my ball. Seven is the number of gods, but it is not good in this sport. We got to hole number two and everyone is giggling. Nobody is saying much. And we are just kind of, just trying to figure out what just happened. And in that moment, I remember getting ready to hit on that second hole. And as I did, one of my friends yelled, hey, 
Maybe he'll have better luck if we move that cow over to the hole. How many of you have those kind of friends in your life? That's Satan. That, no, anyway. And I did something that day that I have still never done since. But I did it out of anger. I pictured my friend's face on the ball, and I hit that ball as hard as I could. Something happened that's never happened since that day. I hit the ball hard, I hit the ball straight, and I hit the ball far. It went about 250 yards, landed on the green, rolled and stopped just short of the flat. And I turned to my friends and I said, today is the last day I'll ever play this game because I know I will never have a shot like that ever again. <laughs> we jumped into the golf cart. My friend was driving. I had my best friend seated next to me and I was on the outside right-hand side. And as we began to go down the hill, the natural law of gravity means we are going to pick up speed. And as we began to pick up speed, the driver did what is a natural reaction. He began to apply the brakes. He didn't just apply them, he slammed them. The difference between a golf cart versus a regular vehicle is that a golf cart has this mechanism called a hill brake. When a hill brake is applied, it gives you the chance to park on an incline or a decline without your golf cart rolling away. When, all, when the hill brake is applied, all four wheels will lock and in that moment, going at a fast speed down a hill, all four wheels locked, causing the golf cart to flip. The driver was ejected to the left. My best friend was ejected through the center. Thankfully, there was not a windshield. I was ejected to the right. I rolled down, and the cart flipped and landed on top of me. Let me just say, I began that day on top of the world, and now I was under a golf cart. That's not a good day. My friends quickly moved that cart off me, and then they began to stare. I didn't understand what was happening. What I did know was that I was in an incredible amount of pain. And that amount of pain was due to the extreme issues and encounters that I had just experienced. Somebody knelt down and began to pray. Another friend grabbed a phone and began to call 911. I knew that my body was contorted, but I knew it was even worse based upon the way that all these friends were staring at me. Can I encourage you? If you ever walk up on an accident, it is not polite to stare and point. <laughs> one by one, different emergency personnel began to arrive on scene. And as they arrived on scene, they would do the same thing. Ooh. <laughs> the police department, the sheriff's department, the CHP, ambulance, fire department, and each of them were looking very oddly as I was contorted on the ground. It would be a year later that I would meet a first responder who described that my head was resting towards my chest. Now, for those of you that don't know, that's not medically possible. Don't go home and try that. Just take my word for that. I knew it was serious when I heard the sound of a helicopter landing on the golf course. And it was there that I was taken and airlifted to a hospital right outside the Bay Area. And while I was there in the hospital, I'm encountering neurosurgeons and doctors who are meeting with me and beginning to treat me. And they would say the same thing in the middle of an x-ray, don't move. They would say the same thing as I was going in for a CAT scan, please remain very still. For the MRI, it was the exact same words, please do not move. And so I was moved from spot to spot. Because I'm a pastor, I was also knowing that someday this would be an amazing sermon illustration. So I'm having fun and trying to capture all these moments as well. So I'm joking. I'm laughing with the people. I'm doing my best to make this fun, though inside I'm overwhelmed and a little nervous. As I began to finish all the tests, a neurosurgeon walks back into the room. And he looks at me and he introduces himself. And he says... We've received your report, and you have now fractured your fourth vertebrae. To which I looked and said, Doctor, I'm so sorry, I don't even know what that means. He said, well, son, you broke your neck. Now again, I'm in a setting and a season where I'm trying to have fun and keeping this loose. And so I smiled and I said, well, fix it. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry? I said, sir, I didn't come here for a tour, I came here for help, can you help me? He said, yes, we're gonna be able to help you. Abe, we're gonna to have to do several things. We're actually going to need to do surgery. 
But surgery is not possible until you, your swelling goes down in your neck. In order for that to happen, we're going to need to install a halo. Abe, do you know what a halo is? I said, well, I grew up in church. Am I dying? <laughs> he says, it's not that kind of halo. You see, son, we're going to drill four screws into your head. It's going to be attached to a halo-type uh, horseshoe-type structure, and then it'll lift the weight of your head off of your neck. After a few weeks, the swelling will go down and we'll be able to do surgery. During surgery, we'll take a piece of your hip bone and we'll graft it to your second, third, and fourth vertebrae. To which all I heard him say is, we're going to drill four screws into your head. That's all I heard. <laughs> I smiled and I said, doctor, uh, this is the time I need to confess. I am, I'm scared of needles. You see, I, I've not had a tetanus shot for 10 plus years because they always say, if you, you need a tetanus shot, if you uh, step on a nail, you will not get any kind of infection. My rule of thumb, don't get the shot, don't step on a nail, and you don't need a shot. That's a good day. To which I knew I had the right doctor when he said these words. Son, by the time you're done with this season, needles will be nothing. And that's when you just go, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> they drilled, they installed, and they took me back to the room. And even though we had laughed and we had joked and we had gone through a lot of different highs and lows in those moments, it was in that final setting where it was now just the neurosurgeon and myself. And he said, before I leave this room, I wanna ask you a question. Are there any questions that you may have for me before I leave and go off duty tonight? And I said these words, doctor, I know I've joked a lot. I know I've had fun and I've tried to keep it light. But honestly, I just have really one question. How long until I can return back to my normal life? And he looked at me with a very different kind of look. The look that he had on his face was truly overwhelmed. And he said, son, I don't believe your definition of normal exists any longer. You see, since you've moved, been brought in here, you've not moved from the neck down. Your official diagnosis is a quadriplegic. And most likely you will never again be able to function from the neck down. It was in that moment I tried to move my hands and nothing happened. Tried to wiggle my toes, nothing happened. I tried to physically get up out of the bed to prove that he was speaking to the wrong patient. The mind sent the message to the body, but the body did not respond. And he said these words, I'm so sorry, I thought you knew. I'm so sorry. And he exited the room, and as he exited, he hit the light switch. And as the room got darker physically, the light in my life began to diminish fast. Why? Fog began to settle in. Every dream that I'd ever had, I now assumed was going to be gone. There was no way I could ask someone to marry me because it would be a life sentence to be a caregiver, and that's not what you do to someone in their early 20s to sentence them to that for the remainder of their life. The ministry call that God had on my life, I immediately knew it was completely gone because there's no way I could stand and lead worship any longer. And all I saw was what I was losing because fog began to settle in. For a minimum of 24 hours or so, I remained in that state coming in and out of sleep with family and friends showing up, great prayer that was taking place. It was over 24 hours later that I was in the room late at night. And when I woke up, two nurses were in the room. Because of the break that I had in my neck, Doctors did not want me to eat anything they were nervous about, and so they only allowed for something called ice chips. Ice chips are awful. I hate ice chips. But it was the only thing to guarantee that nothing could cause further damage to my already defined state. As a result, one nurse said, would you like some ice chips? Let me go get some, and she exited the room. One nurse remained in that setting, and as that nurse remained in that setting, out of the corner of my left eye, I could actually see the original picture of ice chips. And because my throat was dry and my mouth was needing something, I said, excuse me, ma'am, I noticed the ice chips, they're right over there. Can I have some of those? She said, don't worry. The nurse went to go grab them. She'll be right back. I said, you don't understand. They're right there. And she said, where? And when you ask somebody who can't move where something is, 
That does something inside you. And I was angry already. I was bitter. Fog was settling in and clouding everything that I'd ever known to be my hope and my future. And it was in that moment that I began to take my anger out on this poor nurse. If you're a part of the nursing profession, let me just say thank you. And I'm sorry for anyone who has been rude to you. But I became that guy. And I said, ma'am, it's right there to my left and your right. And she looked in the opposite direction. And I was so angry because I thought for the remainder of my life, this is what it's going to be like. I will now be confined to my ability to communicate. And even though I'm a pastor, it's not about what I say, it's about what people hear. And in that moment, I was so angry and I said, no, you're other right. You're, ah. And we just began this exchange back and forth where both voices began to be elevated. I said, ma'am, it's right there. And she said, you just need to calm down. You just need to wait. And we went back and forth. It's right there. Where? It's right there. Where? And finally I yelled, it's just right there. And my hand shot up and pointed to the left. And both of us got nervous. <laughs> she got nervous because quadriplegics are not supposed to move. I was nervous for a different reason that for the remainder of my life, I'd be frozen in this position. <laughs> it was then that I said to God privately, Lord, I'm going to try and move again. And on the count of three, I'm going to move this finger and we're going to see if it still works. One, two, three. And the finger was back. The fingers were back. Both feet were able to function and begin to move. I could wiggle my toes. Everything with the exception of my left arm had immediately come back. Doctors were brought in, and over time, my original neurosurgeon came back in the room to meet me. And he said, Abe, we can define it very differently. Medical science cannot prove why you have any function from the neck down. And I smiled and I said, sir, his name is Jesus. It was then that he said, I practiced medicine for nearly 40 years. And over this time, I can tell you that medical science cannot prove certain things. But at times over the years, I've seen proof of the existence of a being that is higher than us. And I smiled and I said the same words, sir, his name is Jesus and he's my healer. He said, well, maybe it's because you're a pastor. And I laughed and I said, no, it's despite the fact that I'm a pastor, that he's allowed healing. I would love to tell you that from that moment, everything was perfect. To the opposite, that marked 101 of the deepest and darkest days of my life. And even though healing was there and people were coming in and now I was a medical freak that they were now bringing people in to check him out, it was the opposite side in which I was able to say and experience or fog settled in. The world saw one side, but internally, all I could see was fog. As we bring our time to a close today, it's my prayer that you and I begin to live life in a different context, that we not allow fog to define our current state. Again, in this setting, in this era, in our nation's history and what's happening truly globally, it's a season in which fog has set in so many different times in these last several years since 2020. And this is why I took a vacation day to come and, pa and partner with your pastor so that I would have the privilege of praying for individuals who feel as if they're in fog seasons. Maybe it's a doctor who has spoken something over you. Maybe it's a family member in which relationships have now changed. Maybe it's an employer or some situation or circumstance in which you can no longer see which way is up or down. Today, I'm living physical proof that there is life beyond the fog moments. I'm proof today that there is healing that is possible because of who Jesus is. Today, it's my privilege to pray for you. I'd like you to bow your heads with me today as a sign to give your neighbors just a bit of privacy. And if you're here in this house and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, or maybe you're here and you've done that dozens of times, 
But today you would just simply say, hey, pastor, as you have shared, today I realize that there's something about my life that's missing. I need to encounter him as my savior. If you're here today and you've never invited him to be Lord of your life or you've done this dozens of times and today you would say, I need to make a fresh commitment. I need fog to begin to lift. If that's you today, I want you to do this. Will you raise your hand? Then you can put it right back down because I want to have a word of prayer for you. Thank you for your honesty. Multiple. Wow. Wow. Thanks for your honesty. You can place your hands down. Will you all as a church family pray this with me? Dear Jesus, I ask you today to be Lord of my life. Today I admit that I'm a sinner, but I accept that you're my savior. And I believe you died and rose again so that I may have hope. And from this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name, amen. We look at me just for a few seconds. If you're here today and you prayed that, whether the first time or you've done that dozens of times, it says right now in scripture that an angel was ordered to go grab what's called the book of life and to inscribe your name. And it says right now, all of heaven is celebrating. Can we celebrate today? I believe that today, one of the greatest opportunities about church is not just the privilege of worshiping together. It's not just the chance that we have to come together and hear God's word, but this is known as a house of prayer. And so today, if you are here and you may be overwhelmed because fog moments have settled into your life, I wanna invite all of you to stand to your feet. And today, if you need or would like prayer, whether it's for yourself, whether it's for your family, whether it's a friend, whether you're standing in the gap, I'm gonna ask that you do this. Will you step out of your comfort zone and come forward? Not because there's anything magic or mystical about the front of a church, but there's something that happens when we step out of our comfort zone and say, God, do something in my life. I'm going to trust you to break fog moments in which I can no longer see. And as people are coming down and maybe there's some pastors and some of the team members that are here that can help and pray, I wanna personally stand with you and pray because today you're looking at a walking miracle. Not just in my life. One of the greatest joys today is to stand with my friend. This is Scott, you know him. But Scott and I have a different bond. If you look closely at the two of our foreheads, we have the exact same scars because Scott, had his own halo. And a doctor, when I was walking out, said, you are the eighth person to walk out of this spinal cord unit. It was about 15 years ago that I came to this church and I shared that story in a youth ministry setting. And Scott came to me and he said, was your doctor, Dr. Stanley Shatsky? And I just stared and I said, yes. And then I looked at his forehead and I went, hey, you look like me. <laughs> Obviously we look alike. Today, we stand here, and it's my great joy to celebrate the miraculous healing power that is found in the name of Jesus. This team is gonna lead us, and I wanna pray individually with each of you, just quickly, for the purpose of saying, Lord, do something new in our lives. The rest of you, will you just lift your hands with this attitude of worship just in these last few minutes that we take together? Let's worship together. Sing this with us. You hold my every moment. You calm my raging sea. You walk with me through fire and heal all my disease. And I trust. In you, Lord, I trust in you. Yes, Lord, I believe you're my healer. I believe you are all I need. 
portion, God. And I believe you're my portion. I believe you're more than enough for me. And Jesus, you're all I need. You hold this, God. Calm the raging sea. Oh. Right through the fire, God. You walk with me through fire. And you heal all my disease. Right now, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. Oh. sweet and so good and he is all powerful and his word says his arm is never too short to save and when we lay our petitions before him he hears our prayers 
There's no better place than to rest in Christ's arms and in his power because he has a plan for every single one of us, no matter what it looks like or how much fog is in our eyes. We know the promises to those who are in Jesus Christ and it is to prosper and eternal life forever. And in the meantime, to have testimony after testimony, it amazes to me that we're in our second week of guest speakers. And this is the second very powerful miracle story we have heard. It could have been a teaching. It could have been uh, some type of a Bible lesson. It could have been anything. This is the second powerful, miraculous level story that we have heard, which tells me that God is letting us know to believe in greater things and that there are a lot of people in this house who are either needing a miracle or we are needing to be a people who know how to bring the message of Christ's miracles to those around us. So let us not let this word fall on deaf ears. Pursue Christ this week. Let us all pursue Christ, amen? Let us overtake everything he has placed on our heart and the people he has placed on our heart. Let's not give up on anybody, no matter how big the miracle seems so that we can honestly and happily and with great testimony recover everything that Satan has tried to take from us and to bring it all back under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, amen? And let's all, let's all say a warm, warm and super thank you to Pastor Abe for coming and giving us that word. Thank you, Pastor Abe, that really encouraged us and good job on the time, I noticed that. All right, let's dismiss with a blessing. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for your presence and your son, Jesus. Anyone who gave their life to your son this morning has committed themselves to you, has now a promise of eternal life forever as long as we continue that journey in him. Holy Spirit, I pray that everybody here would leave feeling filled up, blessed and ready to be salt and light this week wherever you place them. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you so much, and we also send Pastor Abe and his family with great, great blessing back to his church and as a family too. We're so thankful for them, we're thankful for this church, and God, we pray you continue to be with Pastor David and his family during this time of, uh, of his sabbatical and refreshing. Lord, we want so much for him so he can come back with full of your presence and full of your fresh vision for the next seven years. In your name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Also, if you want to talk to Pastor Abe at all, he'll be out in the foyer. I'm sure he'd love to greet you. Thank you.